This is the Kevin Prendeville Show podcast. Wherever or however you are listening, Google Play, Stitcher, Podcast Republic, or iTunes, this is the full show edited without breaks. You can watch the show live weekdays at 7 a.m. Eastern, 4 a.m. Pacific, or 6 a.m. Central Time. And we're back in a great gray day in Tennessee. It's going to be uh, a little sunny, according to reports later here in the day, but man, is it cold. You know, I moved up uh, from the north as, you know, pretty much everyone who knows me knows, but um, I was uh, I was expecting Tennessee to be a bit warmer. I know, I know, it's February and all that, but uh, I don't know. It doesn't really matter wherever you are. Uh, 20 degrees is cold. But it should get a little warmer by the end of the day, as I said. Just be sure you got the heat on uh, full blast once your once your engine gets warm. The uh, the cars still do that. I got an old um, I got an eighty eighty two Lincoln um, Continental, and uh, it was a gift from a family member. But uh, you always gotta wait. You gotta wait for the heat, which which does work, um, of course, because it's essentially just a. Uh, Essentially, just a valve that opens up and takes the heat from the from the engine. There's no real control over it. It it gets hot pretty quick, which is nice in the winter. But uh, no AC, man. In this Tennessee heat, it does get hot. Regardless, um, we'll get into the opening salvo. But uh, just like everyone else, had to complain about the weather for about thirty seconds. And uh, I want to begin today. Uh, talking about the Federal Reserve. Now, this is an article up on kevinprendeville.com. Also, if you're following me on LinkedIn, we've got uh, our, and the same article written uh, on there. And essentially, uh, with this coming crisis, everyone's talking about the markets falling into or sliding into a recession. And, and that is true. But I want to talk about the Federal Reserve's inability to fix it um, kind of went under the radar, but uh, they injected about $155 billion uh, back into the economy. They do this uh, much like the ill-fated stimulus package of the 2008-2009 uh, Obama years. The uh, Federal Reserve essentially injects money into the larger companies that prop up the stock market and attempts to right the ship uh, right the ship that way. And, uh, if today, uh, is anything to go by, you know, we'll see if it works, but I, uh, I really doubt that it will. Um, you see yesterday stocks were just taking a, an absolute tumble. And I want to make this point because there are a lot of conspiracy theories about the fed. Unfortunately, um, because they are owned by, you know, Rothschild's family, and there are a lot of uh, anti-Semitic folks who will use the Federal Reserve's foundation, or at least its its founding fathers, as an excuse to not like Jewish people. And there's uh, other rumors that the Rothschilds are worth $500 trillion, and they're going to try to control the world through the UN and the Fed. You know, hold your horses. There is something different about the Federal Reserve than other centralized banks, and we'll get into that in the opening salvo here. But I've got to distinguish what I'm talking about from those uh, conspiracy theories. And uh, 
most importantly, because a central bank, and, and we'll get into it here, a central bank and the idea of centralized banking really sprung up in Europe in the 1500s or so. And central banks were essentially a way to try and prevent bank runs. Now, bank runs uh, occur when there is no money in the bank. So a, a crisis would happen or some sort of shortage, and the uh, middle class, if you could call it that, of Europe in the day would go to their banks and pull their gold out and, and money and uh, stockpile it to buy supplies or what have you. And the, the bank wouldn't have any money because it, it would have loaned out uh, to other places. You see, uh, there's that old film from the 30s called um, uh, called It's a Wonderful Life, and there's a run on the bank, and they say, you know, we don't have any money here. It's in Frank's house, in Bob's house, because the bank's loaned out all their money. They're, your money really isn't there. So centralized banks were a way to um, shore up this problem and, and try to prevent bank runs in Europe. And it also gave the monarchies of the day, a little bit more control over the monetary system and, and policy um, because the world had become much more globalized in the 1530s than it had even a decade before in the 1520s. Um, and for proof of that, you just need to look at the different map uh, maps that were widely accepted as the known world. And the, the most prominent one was actually uh, drawn up by a man named Johann Schroeder, where Essentially, he took the information from the day, which was the – we kind of knew about modern-day Virginia, and that was about it. Um, and obviously, the Spanish conquests in um, in South America. And he drew this funny-looking thing because we, we knew about China. We knew about India. We had a general idea where those were for a long time. So he basically drew the Pacific Ocean was, was, like, a, was like a pond. It was this little sliver down the middle that separated the – continents of Asia and America. And it wasn't even called the Pacific Ocean. You just called the whole thing the West Indies Ocean. And uh, uh, it, it just, it looks so alien, so foreign to us. You, you look it up if you got the time. Johann Schro uh, Schroeder map. It's, it's laughable. But just a decade later, using new information, uh, a Venetian called uh, Giovanni Ramuso, I think I'm saying that right, drew up a map using his information and uh, which which was expanded upon by explorers and his map though it's not perfect is kind of close um, to what the world looks like and it's impressive because he drew this thing up in, in, in what like 1530 um, you know when we didn't even know what what the interior of America will look like. We had almost a hundred years to go before the English discovered uh, Virginia. So it, it was really impressive, but it goes to show how much the world had changed. But it also proves my point that centralized banking be, had become a necessity in Europe because of colonization and just how global the market had started to become. But if we fast forward to 1913, and I'm going to give you a little bit of a history on, on the Federal Reserve here, the history of the Federal Reserve is one that has two sides. There's the political side, and then there's the economic side. The economic side uh, was really one that attempted to 
better controlled the monetary system in the United States because there was a bit of an issue when it came to uh, to the U.S. government and spending because the U.S. had always had this policy where the the government would essentially try to tax as little as possible. Now they tax enough to function, obviously, um, but this goes back to our, our early roots with the Articles of Confederation and uh, and our uh, spat with the British. Our revolution probably shouldn't call that a spat, and. Um, Essentially, so the, the the U.S. federal government at the time, you know, it didn't have the same welfare programs it has now. It didn't have, um, I mean, our military in the Gilded Age was, um, except for the Civil War, was hardly in use. And, and when it was, um, you know, at most it was fighting the Spanish, who, who were even farther behind than we were. And there just wasn't the same needs that the government has now. And so essentially... Uh, uh, in order to get around the public perception that the government was spending money, um, in order to help ramp up uh, spending and, and better open a better channel between the government and the privatized banking sector, uh, a number of families, primarily the uh, Warburgs, the Rothschild, the Kuhn Loeb's, and the Rothschilds, they essentially created a system or a framework in 1910 at Jekyll Island in order to better work around the current the government restrictions of the day. But they needed another side to it, the political side. And this political side was exemplified by their inclusion of Senator Nelson Aldrich. Now, Nelson Aldrich was known as a friend of big business. He was a senator from New York, and essentially he was very much in support of centralizing the banking system and keeping that power in the Northeast. But at the same time, he he also was the cog in the wheel that drove the, the political engine of the Federal Reserve because he was able to get feelers out, and essentially bring in other political figures to try to get this in front of Woodrow Wilson. But it also ran into a couple of issues, most notably uh, William Jennings Bryant, who was pretty, was the closest thing we've ever had to Trump in American history. He was this uh, kind of larger-than-life uh, figure who primarily in the Midwest uh, operated and stood up for the farmers during the railroad monopolies and attempted many times to get the government to change our standard from the gold standard to the silver standard in order to better help farmers that were in debt not have to pay as much by inflating the dollar. And so Nelson Aldridge was able to convince William Jennings Bryan on that fact that because the Federal Reserve had many more levers that they could pull other than just... Um, and then just different standards, whether it be gold or silver. Uh, Aldridge was able to convince Jennings Bryan to go along with it, so they really didn't get a, a whole lot of pushback from the what they deemed to be the most dangerous section of the country, which was still the burgeoning West. But unlike the central banks of the 1500s, the Federal Reserve 
was actually able to uh, inject money into the economy as they do frequently now, and were a was able to more directly work with the government and fund many of its projects, and also was able to double dip, as it also had its hand in the private banks, and a lot of its investment are in the uh, investments of uh, of private loans and other projects, whatever they may be, going on in the United States. Now, when we come back, and this history is important because I need you to understand that the a lot of what's going on in the market as a correction right now is a little bit of smoke and mirrors. So we're actually going to take a look. We're going to go across the pond and take a look at the United Kingdom's market. This is important because, as we remember, they've just gone through Brexit. There's a lot of change and uncertainty, but that didn't disrupt their market. What disrupted their market was the coronavirus. And by the end of today's show, we're actually going to tie all of this back to this history and important piece in the founding of the Federal Reserve. Stay tuned. And we're back. Nothing has really changed that much, thankfully, in the great state of Tennessee here, as it's only been about five minutes. I'm sure it didn't feel that much because we had some great uh, inter intercession there with our uh, advertisements. But of course, if you're listening to this on iTunes or any other media platform that we have posted this to, you didn't hear any of those, and so it was about three seconds. Hope your day's still going well. Anyways, uh Got to be a little cheery here as uh, markets are completely upside down, and I don't think they're going to get any better. Now, let's hop across the pond and uh, take a look at the United Kingdom's market. You'll remember about a week ago or more, I was discussing the uh, great triumph of Brexit and how uh, really what I believe is because the UK is going to be able to renegotiate a lot of these deals that they um, that are going to be changing now that they're out of the EU, I think that there's a, a really actually a lot of room for potential. And also, it's going to strengthen the position of a lot of United Kingdom companies. And companies that are based in the UK um, really are in that upper tier. Um, I'm talking about larger companies. Are really in the upper tier of... European economics, um, and this really comes just from the uh, the fact that the British Isles are just simply more industrialized. They've got a better work base, and um, and now that the UK is free, they've got uh, they don't have to deal with uh, as many restrictions that they would have had they been part of the large larger trading bloc, and Brussels won't be interceding in a lot of their uh, affairs anymore, which is a good thing, but none of that seems to be coming to fruition. I mean, the FTSE uh, 100, which is essentially, I almost said 500 because I'm uh, used to the our American numbers, but the FTSE uh, 100, which is essentially the uh, United King Kingdom's equivalent to the uh, S&P 500 and uh, Dow Jones markets, that's a, a a trillion and a half pound market. That's you know that's that's huge, and I know it's in in, in pound uh, sterling, and us Americans don't really know how to convert that off the top of my head, off the top of uh, our heads, or at least I don't. Um, but a trillion and a half of anything, unless it's Zimbabwe's currency, is is rather large, isn't it? 
And though the rest of the world typically reacts to the Dow Jones and S&P, um, the, it's important to still note what the United Kingdom's market does, especially, again, now that they're free of the European Union. But um, we're seeing a lot of similarities, or at least I've noticed a lot of the similarities now that I've really begun to dug in, dig in and, and pay attention to this between, um, between the U.S. market and uh, the FTSE 100. And now, obviously, like I said, a lot of markets like this will follow the U.S. market, but we have to remember that these huge numbers are really dominated by global companies, as they should, obviously. Uh, the larger a company gets, the more influence it holds, and the more influence it holds, the more they can exert that over the globe. Um, so... When when production gets backed up, when the supply lines in China are not working the way that they should, the economy is going to take a downturn just because companies are not going to be able to meet their goals and their deadlines. And uh, as a result of that, they're not going to make the profit that they assume they would. And as far as declaring dividends go, those may not be as good as once thought. Therefore, the market goes down. It all seems pretty simple, but of course, we get into the microeconomics of things, and um, and things get a little bit more complicated. But um, there's an article here on uh, on uh, LBC, which is leading British conversation. It's a relatively nice sized uh, radio station media company over there in the United Kingdom, and they have a article up called uh, "London Stock Market Has Had the Biggest Fall Since the 2008." Crisis. Now, you've also seen this headline in the United States, where the Dow Jones has had its worst uh, couple of days since 2008. And this headline mainly, mainly plastered everywhere to, to get at Trump, um, but brings up 2008 again. Not saying it's inaccurate, because in a lot of cases the numbers will say that, but we're nowhere near the crisis of 2008. Well, I do want to make that clear this can pass and there's a lot of rebound potential versus uh, 2008 where we really needed a hard reset because there wasn't the value in the subprime market that, that we thought and it affected a lot of other companies. There'll be more on that in the second segment, but um, what I want to make clear here is that um, this article here talks about the uh, EasyJet's value was cut in almost by a third. EasyJet's a Booking uh, service, essentially like Booking.com, but it's on the FTSE 100, uh, which is obviously why it's featured in this article. And its value has been almost cut by a third because of, well, the inability to travel to China. But I want to make these two points before we head into the second break here. And the first one is the stock market's reliance on big companies. Now, in the U.S., what primarily drove a lot of our growth was uh, Netflix, Apple, Google, and Amazon. And those were really the big the big four as they grew and really hurtled towards um, that trillion dollar number. Uh, the, stock, the stock market grew with them. And now what uh, what do they most of these have in common is that they either have a lot of labor or products shipped to and or from China. About 20% of the world's industrial 
production comes from that country. And so when something like this happens in China, of course it's going to affect the global market. But the second point I want to make here, other than obviously uh, the stock market really globally is only based on a handful of companies in terms of whether it does well or not, but the silver lining here is that I think you're going to start to see a lot of industrial production start to move out of China. And not not that it's going to collapse or go from 20% to 0% or something like that, but you may see a dip down to maybe 18%. As you see, the inadequacies of the Chinese government uh, in containing this, this virus, uh, perhaps you'll see companies like Apple. I know Nike talks about moving where they might move into uh, let's say India, which is a little bit more of a freer country, but it still has the same potential for industrial production, um, or maybe the Philippines or some of the Southeast Asian countries, because you can't really produce what you used to in the United States or, um, heck, in Europe and in Germany and in and the United Kingdom, simply because the it would cost too much. The the people are much more skilled as well. And I don't mean this as a, you know, nobody from India is skilled or anything like this. I just mean that there's a better chance of education in these more developed countries. Just that's the way the world works. And the more skilled you are, the more specialized you are, the more money you make. That's why athletes make so much money is because they're very good at one thing. And that's entertaining you with physical feats and, um, and because of that, they're able to generate a lot of value and a lot of money. Same thing with any entertainers and actors and um, and businessmen. You know, businessmen who have really been successful, they're good at doing one thing, and that's growing their business or creating a product and then marketing that product, creating value for the consumer and making um, a lot of people happy. A lot of people pay you. You make a lot of money. It's quite simple. Um and so you're going to have to produce a lot of uh, – uh, use a lot of, of, of cheap labor. And the, the best way to find that right now is, uh, is in China or in India, uh, the Philippines. Uh, Vietnam is popular too. But um, as we see the inadequacies of the Chinese government on full display here – Maybe you're going to see some people start to produce in some of the other countries we mentioned. Now, stay tuned for the second segment because we're going to take this and we're going to talk about something known as the repo market. And I'm not talking about cars, but we're going to be talking about derivatives and maybe a rebound for the market. Stay tuned. So section of the financial markets that are really not explained uh, typically by the industry, and they are really a niche subject, but they are so important. It's known as the repo market. And again, no, I'm not talking about cars when people don't make a payment on them or houses. It's essentially a secondary market. So let's say a company like, um, uh, well, JCPenney, for instance, um, they're in a bit of a, a trouble, and they take a loan out to restructure or... Um, just raise capital in order to uh, cover bills or what whatever it is. Well, 
uh, Bank A that actually puts the loan, gives the loan to J.C. Penney, they sell their interest to uh, Bank B, and this is might be in some cases in order to provide the money for J.C. Penney or for other reasons, and that uh, note is can then be invested by uh, Fund A. We'll call it uh, we'll call it Fund X. Um, this is how a lot of companies got in trouble in 08, is that they'd put money into these funds that were invested in these notes that were passed from Bank A to Bank B. Now, if something were to happen to JCPenney and that loan is defaulted on, Bank B, which spent all this money acquiring this loan from Bank A, there's no recourse from it because um, under law uh, in the U.S., there's no recourse. They didn't give any money to JCPenney and the agreements between JCPenney and Bank A. So Bank A could probably get their money back. Um, but in terms of, uh, but by the time that happens, they go through all the legal, legal proceedings, Bank B could be belly up or the um, investment's not worth it and Fund X loses money or the, the, it's no good. And this can set off a chain of uh, chain reactions within the market that can cause failures. And that's some of what we saw in 2008 uh, with the subprime um, mortgage market. Now, it's not totally what we uh, what we saw, but it was a small part of it, and it's not something people often talk about. And I put it in really simplistic terms, but you can get pretty in-depth with it. There's a number of great uh, videos on uh, YouTube and uh, other financial, um, financial experts um, within, uh, you know, who have uh, doctorates and that kind of stuff, and really people who, who study economics um, in the ivory towers um, can give much more in-depth explanations. But that's basically what you need to know for our discussion here, because this um, really could both help and hurt uh, a rebound. And in terms of hurting a, a rebound, I think it's pretty obvious that um, should, due to the coronavirus, a lot of things get backed up, most notably uh, uh, supply chains. And for whatever reason, loans at some mid to larger size companies can't get repaid. It could trigger um, the same kind of chain reaction that we saw um that we saw as as part of the effects of 2008 and the the Great Recession then. Now, um, in terms of being a positive for a, a rebound market, well, this is a great opportunity for companies to, if they are taking money out of some of the failing stocks or not expecting profit or, or expecting a, a return from um the coronavirus and anytime soon as we are coming out of flu season, um, you could probably see companies re uh, who have liquid reserves on, on hand, which isn't as many as you would think. Uh, a lot of companies are, are pretty leveraged right now. I remember seeing an article in Forbes about that, and we actually talked about it on the show a while back. Um, but companies that have the ability, that, that are liquid and have the ability to um, put their money elsewhere, you could probably see some of those uh, investing in these type of loans, knowing that hopefully the, the long-term profit um, will come back. Because unlike 2008, you know, this isn't a failure of the financial market. This is just business uh, really not 
functioning as well just for some from something completely out of anyone's control. There's no gr- great bubble that bursts where the market needs to have a a correction that is a hard reset. Whereas instead, um, you might see a correction here that's an an adjustment and it might be steep, but then there's a a, a potential for a rebound. You know, it's, the reset's not going to be so enormous that it's going to take years to recover. Um, essentially, uh, because we've got a lot of the deregulation in place um, from what from what Trump proposed and a lot of the new tax structures. So there are still opportunities to build wealth. And, and here in Tennessee, um, you know, the real estate market's great. So we're not going to feel a lot of those effects. Um, and that goes for anyone who's listening outside of Tennessee whose local real estate markets are rather strong. Um, you know, you'll be relatively insulated from this. Um, I don't I don't think that this is going to be a prolonged recession Although, of course, the sensationalist headlines don't help at all. Of course, um, too, if you haven't, this is also a great reason why you should probably invest in some sort of hard asset, be it precious metals or real estate or what have you, because it's a heck of a lot more controllable than the stock market. I had an old mentor tell me the stock market is for two types of people. The first person is the rich guy who just needs a place to park money. And the second is for poor people to think that they're rich. That's it. Not the place to put your retirement savings, but here we are. Anyways, in the final segment, we're going to take things a little lighter. We're going to talk about Bob Iger stepping down. We're going to talk about leaving a legacy and what the real value of a good CEO is. Stay tuned right here on the Kevin Prendeville Show. Well, welcome back. The sun is uh, just coming up here on a beautiful Thursday morning, and uh, it really is quite pleasant. You see, all the I can see from where I am, a um, little bit of a landscape, and uh, it was just nothing quite like a great morning. I hope you're having a great morning. I know we're talking about some unfortunate happenings that are going on right now, but you're going to have to put on a uh, on a smile and uh, go to work and, and get things done, and and we'll see what, what kind of great things you can create in the time that, that you're allotted here. And I want to leave us off on segment today with... Uh, with a uh, article here about CEO of Disney, Bob Iger. Now, uh, fans of uh, certain movies uh, won't mention them, except I will. Star Wars uh, and um, anybody, any other fan base that feels maligned. But Star Wars had uh, the new trilogy come out, and all over the internet, people who really don't have anything going on in their lives other than to complain about uh, a science fiction movie in which an evil wizard comes back from the dead to terrorize our good heroes um, about how it, it ruined their childhood or something like that. Now, um, again, I don't want to get uh, too into it, but uh, this is not Bob Iker's fault. They purchased Star Wars and... Uh, have been attempting to create a profit and I think generated uh, an all right profit um, from the film uh, series that they've done and other um, other licenses, whether it is through uh, video game media or television media or toys or what have you. The, uh, the investment uh, to pay George Lucas about $4 billion for the rights of Star Wars uh, seems to have paid off. 
And that's the real value of CEO, when they can acquire new properties or do something that really takes their company that they represent and they work for and puts it on a new stage. Now, it would seem that there isn't a whole lot of other places to go for Disney from here, that they've already reached a pinnacle. They've bought Marvel, they've bought uh, ESPN, and Disney uh, has also bought uh, Fox and really has owned uh, a lot of different... Uh, other uh, different media brands. And this has a lot to do with the strength of Iger himself. And as a CEO, he's going to be able to hang his hat on launching Disney+, Plus, acquiring uh, the Star Wars properties, acquiring uh, Fox Sports, acquiring... Um, the animation for Fox, acquiring essentially everything except for uh, Fox News. And he's going to be able to say that he grew Disney into this behemoth of a company. Not that not that it wasn't huge before he took over, but it's just that much more bigger now that he's leaving. And it's a perfect time to step down with the, um, uh, with the launch of Disney+, Plus because now as Disney moves into a new era of streaming... He can he can really take a step back and let someone else uh, decide whether or not it's going to to be profitable. While he can go and and rest on his laurels, and that's fine. And he's left a legacy, and I think we're going to look back on his um, tenure as as CEO as uh, a really positive one. Uh, now, is it going to be you know on the with the likes of Colonel Sanders and Warren Buffett? I, I don't think so, but. It will certainly be one that should be remembered fondly, especially by anybody who had invested in this huge company. And that's really, on a much smaller scale, uh, if you work for a corporation or a company, that's what you're doing. You're showing up every day to, in some way, create value for that company that impacts others or impacts the world. And by treating your work with with care and meeting the, the deadlines set before you, you are, in a small way, um, improving the world and, and, and those around you and creating additional value for the company. And that, in and of itself, is why you get paid. And that's why CEOs get paid so much, because they can affect so much with a simple decision, good or bad. And they have the skills, or are supposed to have the skills, to achieve those positive results. So I want you to keep this in mind, and you know I know there's going to be a lot of uh, angry fans who don't like how movies were written, who instead of getting mad at the writer for some reason get mad at the CEO. He's just there for business, and it's just business. And that is just the way of the world. I'm Kevin Prendeville, uh, and this has been the Kevin Prendeville Show. Hope you have a great Thursday. We will hopefully see you around the block.